Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Um, I, I just feel more comfortable now and more, um, more free to not have to live up to an expectation that maybe somebody else had set and I can really be a man on my own terms. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Being a man is knowing who you are. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Men don't have any function anymore. And need to talk about more. I think the transition is hard. But I think where we're going is going to be great. I'm Anna Sale. And after our episode Manhood Now came out earlier this summer... We heard from a lot of you that you wanted to continue the conversation. So last night, I hosted a live call-in that aired on public radio stations around the country to hear more about what's changing in your lives for both men and women as we rethink our expectations for men. CNN's W. Kamau Bell joined me for the whole hour, and we talked together with you about what's changing for men right now what's not changing fast enough, and why talking about manhood can be so hard in the first place, especially on live radio. Here's the show. Tonight, we are talking about manhood now. I'm Anna Sale, host of Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios, the podcast about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. And for the past several months, we've been collecting stories from men about how they are experiencing this moment when we're having a conversation as a culture about what's healthy masculinity and what's toxic and hearing how they're integrating all this into their behavior and self-image. This is one man we heard from named Dwayne, who's in his mid-40s. I get this kind of paralysis um, where you're trying to be all these different things at the same time and unlearn past behaviors. And I, I, I know I'm not the only one that gets stuck there. Dwayne is not the only one who's feeling stuck. And a lot of American men are feeling pressure. In a national survey we conducted with the data news site 538 and SurveyMonkey, more than 6 in 10 men reported feeling like society puts an unhealthy amount of pressure on men right now. And some of those pressures are new, especially in the Me Too era. And we feel like there's more to talk about together about this, about manhood now. So we're doing this national call-in. And we're going to start with calls from men. But over the course of the hour, we're going to bring women into the conversation as well. So men, my first question for you, do you feel like what's expected of you is changing right now? Where in your life are you noticing that? Give us a call. The phone number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. You can also tweet us at Death, Sex, Money. Joining me to take your calls all hour long is W. Kamau Bell, a comedian, writer, host of CNN's United Shades of America, and star of the new Netflix special, Private School Negro. Kamau is also critically a man, and he joins me from KALW in San Francisco. Hello, Kamau. <laughs> yes, I'm the man on duty today. Yes. <laughs> First man reporting for duty. So let's start with you. You work in comedy. You're a husband. You're a father of three daughters. So for you in the last year, has there been a moment when you've looked back and realized, huh, the way I thought of what it is to be a man and the way I learned to be a man growing up maybe needs to be reset? 
Yeah, I think as a lot of men are talking about this, the Me Too movement has really sort of made a lot of us stop and think about how we were raised and how we were programmed and how we've acted in the world. And, you know, so it's not even so much how I thought about myself as a man, but how I interact with other men during the production of season three of United Shades. We would be in the van driving around the country, me and uh, producers, one of whom, Dwayne Kennedy, is a good friend of mine, a comedian I've known forever. And we would just like all the every day, a couple times a day for a while, it seemed like there would just be a, a man who would be who would be exposed as an abuser or as a harasser. And so it just became part of our daily conversation. Like I would just turn to Dwayne and be like, hey, man, Joe Schmo. And he'd be like, what? I was like, Joe Schmo. And he would immediately know, oh, that's a man who's been taken down by the Me Too movement or not by the Me Too movement, but has been taken down, has been exposed as a harasser. And it just made us talk about ourselves and what we had and how we had been in the world and how we had been men. And what, for you, did you talk about? What did you say, like, huh? You know, I've known Dwayne for over 20 years, well over 20 years, and we talk about everything. He's one of my best friends, but we didn't, we'd never really had the discussions about, have you ever been in a situation where, looking back, you realize that you did not behave appropriately with a woman? And so the, which is a, you know, it's just a, a conversation I don't think men are used to having because either we don't believe we've ever behaved inappropriately or we, or when we talk about it, we don't talk about it like it was inappropriate. You know, there's just not the way we, we're not, you know, really, we're not used to confiding in our man friends about our pain, even though I consider myself a pretty sensitive man and Dwayne is too. So that's, a, it was a different conversation for us to have. Because hmm. it was totally new. It was something you, that, a, that you, a place you hadn't gone before as friends in your 20 years of friendship. Yes. And you were raised primarily by a single mom, but you write in your book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, that, that you were in college before you really had female friends. <laughs> what was going on there? <laughs> <laughs> and and to be clear, I actually in college was like, okay, time to get some female friends. You know, like there was a, <laughs> it was a, it was an active decision. It wasn't like it sort of not happened naturally. It was like I had looked at my life. I did not date in high school. All my sexual experiences were just sort of like things that were done more out of like a dare, out of a weird sort of like teenagers having fun. There was not really a relationship. And at some point, it sort of occurred to me, like in some sort of aha moment, that wait a minute. If I become friends with women, I might learn how to date women. And so I really, post-college, like in college, and then after that, I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to try to learn how to become friends with women, which sounds really crazy to say, but it was really something I thought and actually went out and did. And and what did you find? What did you discover when you became friends with females? <laughs> no, there's before. no way this sounds good. I discovered that women are people too, Anna. No, I just I just discovered that I had like you know I had whatever mystery I'd put into the whole man woman thing I had I was putting too much on it and once I realized once I sort of like engaged with women is like you're not just a person that I potentially will date or not date but you're actually a, you're actually a person who provides a value experience to my life and and teaches me things I didn't know because we had different experiences it changed my life and so now I probably I, you know it's one of the things where it's. I value those friendships in a very significant way, and some of you know, some of my best friends are women. Anna Sale, <laughs> congratulations, Kamau. Thank you, thank you. We, we, this, there's we, no way. There's the problem with being the man on the show. It just none of this is going to sound good at some well, point. It's all going to be cut up on the internet. We have we have more men joining you in the conversation. We are asking you right now, what about being a man? Have you rethought in the last year, and 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 what are you feeling about the expectations that are on you right now, and where have you noticed those changing expectations, Jay? In Pennsylvania has called in. Hi, Jay. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. So wh- what about you? What Are you noticing a feeling of, of different expectations for you as a man than, than how you previously felt? Well, um, I think I, I, I'll just mention briefly, I'm, you know, I'm old enough, I've been married long enough that I, you know, I've, I've just seen, you know, changes happen over the years. And when, when I was, when I first got married, we were kind of following the traditional roles, you know, of what, you know, my wife thought she should be doing as a, you know, a wife, and then we started a family, what I should be doing as a father and a husband. And then over the years, you know, it, 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 things just kind of changed gradually so that I was expect she, I think, wanted me to do more, um, you know, in terms of like helping, um, helping out with household duties and and with the kids than I thought I would be doing when we first got married and so it just kind of changed gradually and I I think it you know at times it makes me feel a little off balance but at the same time I think that 
it's 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 been a good thing, you know, just to so that I could do more to to help out and that she could do things that she original or at first thought that she wouldn't be able to do. And Jay, as your duties around or in your household as they expanded and as you were doing things that perhaps before felt like more traditionally female jobs to do, did did it change the way you thought about yourself as a man and the way you thought about what your kind of purpose was in your family? Yeah, I, I think in a way, you know, it's just, yeah, um, yeah, in a way, because I mean, like, I think about the way that, that I grew up, that I was raised, and it just, it was different, and I think about, you know, I think it's a generational thing, or that's part of it, that, you know, I think about, like, what, you know, what my dad did when I was growing up, so... Yeah, it made me. It's, it just made me feel, you know, kind of different about myself. Yeah. And and about how old are you, Jay? I'm in my fifties, like mid fifties. You're in your mid fifties now, and and what do you think your kids have learned from observing the way you behave in in your household? Like, what what do you think they've taken away from from watching my, you? My, my kids. You mean my kids? Yeah. My kids. Well, I think I think it it's probably help them in some ways just to see that you know that it it is okay you know to to do certain things or and take on re- responsibility for maybe for some things that you know that uh that men used to not do so much and i think that's a good thing all right thanks for your call jay i'm going to bring john in boston into the conversation hi john Hi, how are you? Hi, good. And how about you? What kinds of expectations are you feeling as a man, and, and have you felt a shift recently? Um, yeah, for sure. I'm uh, I'm a stay-at-home father of two uh, three-year-old twin boys, um, and so I'm uh, I'm kind of living a shift in gender expectations. Uh huh. And what does that mean for you? Like, how has that has that felt comfortable? Um. It, it, it has both been comfortable and uncomfortable at different moments. I, I certainly enjoy being home with my children and raising them and being kind of the day-to-day caretaker in their lives. But also, it's a very odd experience um, sometimes to be the only man in a playground um, and um, kind of being in those scenarios where typically women are, and that's certainly not the way I was raised. My father owned a construction company, and my stepmother and mother were home with us, um, so that was kind of my sense of what parenthood was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I go and talk to my other male friends and go out for drinks after work or whatever, um, they have all these stories of work and problems at work with coworkers and management, and I have stories of changing diapers and play dates. Um, so it's a very different um, way to interact with my male friends now. Does it feel lonely? Uh, it certainly can, yeah. Um, uh, over over the three years, I've definitely gotten some mom friends, but a, a lot of the moms are leery of me and don't necessarily engage in conversations the way they seem like they do. Um, strangers don't often walk up to me at the playground to talk to me, so, so it's certainly um, not always the most social activity. Leery. It's interesting that you you feel that. What do you think that is? Um... I don't know exactly. I, I think part of it is um, the, the tension between, um, you know, married men and married women and um, kind of being careful of society's perceptions. And, you know, if, if I get too close to a female friend and we spend a lot of time together outside of the, you know, interactions between couples, but one-on-one, is there a sense of, oh, are they having an affair? Or is that, is that why they're together? Or um, kind of that kind of societal discomfort with um, intergender friendships that certainly happen, but they often happen. Um, you know, I, I don't often go over to women's homes when their husbands aren't home and they don't come to mind when my wife isn't home. Huh, interesting. Um, well, John, thanks for your call. Thanks for bringing that into the conversation. Speaking of female friends, Kamau, um, <laughs> the, the different ways that we experience that depending on where we are in our lives. We are taking your calls all this hour about manhood now. After the break, we're going to talk about the role models you have as a man, what you had growing up, how you're thinking about them now, 
what you're holding on to and what you think you might be ready to let go of. The phone number to call is 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. And we want to hear from women as well as men. When you thought about what a good man was when you were growing up, men and women, what did that look like and how has that changed? 844-745-8255. 844-745-TALK. I'm Anna Sale with W. Kamau Bell from Death, Sex, and Money. After the break, more conversation. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anna Sale, host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios. And all this hour, we're talking about manhood now. Along with me taking your calls from across the country is W. Kamau Bell, comedian, CNN host, man. Hello, Kamau. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and now we are taking Gotta your calls. Got to get new calls. business cards. Yes. <laughs> we are taking your calls about role models for masculinity and being a good man. Where did you get your messages about what the right kind of guy is? And are you in the process of updating any of those? So women and men, <laughs> give us a call, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. One of the things we've heard from men is that while many of them are rethinking how much of traditional masculinity they want to embrace, not having clear guidance on how to be can be unsettling if they are letting go of role models. I talked to a guy named David who's been a stay-at-home dad for almost 20 years, and he told me that his grandfather, who was an engineer, was a real by-the-book kind of guy. If somebody with my grandfather's disposition were uh, an 18-year-old young man right now, he would likely feel extremely unmoored because we're not really into handing down rules anymore, but those can be really comforting for some people. And in our episode called Manhood Now, I talked to a young college graduate named Alex. You can see that episode at deathsexmoney.org. Alex talked about going to a Reddit thread called The Red Pill, not because he supports the kind of misogyny that often shows up there, but because he feels like he's looking for advice on how to be a man. And he's picking up things about how to pick up women and how to be confident there. So men are looking for role models right now. Um, Kamau, when we asked men in our survey with 538 who their role model was to be a good man, around two-thirds said it was their father. When you think about 18-year-old Kamal W. Kamal Bell in the early 90s. Who do you think about about who was your role model for what kind of man you wanted to grow into? Well, it's a very uh, loaded question because I just told my dad to listen to the show and I'm also <laughs> not going to give him as the answer right now. Your father and? <laughs> my father. I mean, you know, I, did, I grew up, like you said, I grew up with my mom. I saw my dad every summer, but our relationship has gotten closer as I've gotten older. You know, as a, as a kid, I think we probably didn't understand each other. And so a lot of my role models were like, as a lot of people do, are pieced together from pop culture. So. 18-year-old Kamau had just read the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X because he was excited about the movie starring Denzel Washington. And that book was really, a, a, like, that book changed my life and really helped define um, as what a man can be because it showed what a man could come from and how your circumstances don't necessarily define who you're going to be in your life. And how do you think about that now? Was Malcolm X a good role model for an 18-year-old man? You know, the uh, yes, the great thing about him as a good role model, and I think this is the thing we're running into now, is that he was locked in time because he was long dead. You know, mm-hmm. there was no way for Malcolm X to ruin the image of Malcolm X the way that, like, now we have this thing where it's like, you know, now it's like I, I, fi- I realize you have, to find, you have to define the difference between being inspired by somebody's works and actually thinking that they are their works. So that's the thing I think we've run into now with, with, with learning more about these people who are in the world than we knew. I want to bring Andrew in Brooklyn into the conversation. Andrew, when you think about your role model for manhood, who do you think of? 
um, my father might be a boring answer, but um, he was a uh, um, a recovering. He is now recovered alcoholic, and in my family, um, in a, I guess a traditional sense, uh, he was not the breadwinner. My mother was. Uh, she had a much higher paying job. And he made certain sacrifices and certain commitments uh, as my sister and I got older that kind of showed me what it meant to be a man. And when you think about what your father represented for you, the lessons you learned about how to be a man, what is it that you learned from his example? Um, the biggest thing he taught me was self-respect in the sense that no amount of money is going to define if you're a man or not. Um, and it's been something I've been trying to remember, especially as I um, move forward into my career. But he is saying that he's always said that you're not going to be able to define yourself by anything other than being a good person. It might sound a little cheesy, but with what he's had to come back from, and he and my mother have maintained um, a good marriage through this. He always put that as his number one. He said you have to keep your you have to know what's important and to not get distracted by things in life that'll pull you away from what's good. Meaning, you know, that always meant us as my sister and myself and uh, his wife, my mother. Andrew, thanks very much for your call. Charles in Chicago, how about you? When you think about your role model for how to be a man, how, who do you think of and, and how do you look back on that now? Well, for myself, I mean, I think about my mom. You know, she passed when I was 19, but a lot of the things that I was able to, you know, do and, and, and think about and how I was supposed to conduct myself, not only to, to women, but just, like, character-wise, you know, I, I, I think of my mom, you know, she passed. And it, I don't know, kind of really hard to kind of go back and think about. But, you know, when I, when I really think about myself now, and, like, I have a daughter, she's one and a half, and my wife, like, a lot of the things that I took, you know, really kind of came from her. So. Mm, so your mom. And and when yeah. you think about, like, you know, the idea about maybe how you felt about how to be a man or, or what parts of masculinity you needed to carry with you, um, what about your mom's character helped you sort through that? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> she was very steadfast, loving and caring. Um, growing up with, with, with four sisters and learning how... A you lot know, of women in your life, Charles. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, she was she was very stern and and very, but also also loving. You know, she could, you know, smile at you and and in in the same kind of blink of an eye, you know, kind of give you like this stare, and and you're you're both you know loving her and kind of <laughs> being afraid of her at the same time. But um, I mean, she taught me hard work, discipline. She taught me how to really be a people's person, and I feel like as a man and just like as a person, like that's a good goal that you should have. Mm. Um, and I, I, you know, when a lot of people are talking about traditional masculinity roles, like I feel like for my marriage it's pretty fluid. Um, but you know, my mom and my dad, you know, their marriage was, you know, a bit more, you know, female role, male role. But I quickly learned that wasn't the case when, um, <laughs> you know, things needed to get done and, and someone had to do it, especially with eight people in the house. So, <laughs> Thank you for your call, Charles, and thanks for helping us remember your mom tonight. Um, thanks. Kip in Washington, D.C., how about you? When you think about your role models for manhood, who do you think of, and, and have you updated any of those? Yeah, you know, I mostly think about my sports coaches. Uh, I grew up playing a lot of different sports. Um, and I think as a young boy, you know, you idolize if you're into sports. Um, you know, you idolize those older men who are really good at playing sports. It's a big place where you bond with other boys. Um, but, you know, I had a really negative experience with sports coaches the older I got. Um, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the qualities of what we're, you know, now calling toxic masculinity, a lot of those things are very widespread in sports, and a lot of men learn those from their, from their coaches. Um, so... Uh, about you know, I, about I what spent, age did you notice that shift where it felt like it was becoming not positive for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd probably say like junior high, 12, uh -huh. 13, uh -huh. um, I guess around the time of puberty. Um, uh, and it was really like uh, just more uh, innuendos or blatant jokes about sex, about women as sex objects, about pornography, about... Locker room talk, strippers. as they say. Yeah, 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 uh -huh. exactly. Locker room talk. Um, 
and I think, you know, I played sports all the way through college and then ended up, and I uh, coached high school sports for three years out of college. Um, and one of the things that I find kind of insane is that coaches have such an outsized role in boys' and men's lives, but they're rarely given any kind of, like, specialized training hmm. in how to be a good mentor and how to how to unlearn some of the negative qualities of toxic masculinity uh, and you know, actually cultivate good qualities within young men and boys. Um, so I, that's, one of the, that's one of the things I'm hopeful about at this moment um, post-Me Too is that there's going to be um, more critical reflection in the education sphere and in sports coaching to um, have men examine their own, their own lives and their own, um, you know, uh, past actions that don't line up with their higher values and just how the culture uh, informs behavior. And Kip, I, I'm curious, because you coached after going all the way through college sports and, and knowing mm-hmm. that when you were a teenager, you didn't have great positive re- relationships with coaches, how did you try yeah. to interact with the teenage boys that you were coaching? What did yeah, you try you to know, model was, for them? It was difficult for me, because I think, I think at the time I was feeling really um, kind of wounded and betrayed by a lot of my experiences in sports. Um, because I just kind of came to feel like a lot of the sports cultures I was a part of were kind of morally bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time, the thing I really focused on was um, trying to let these boys know that it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to ask for help, Um, trying to instill some of those, you know, positive relationship traits, positive relationship skills that I think a lot of young boys don't get so much. Um, and then when I, you know, when I heard um, locker room talk going on, just interjecting myself and saying, hey, that's not okay to say that, um, kind of intervening in small ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thanks for your call, Kip. I appreciate it. We are sure, taking your you. calls all this hour about manhood now. Right now we're talking about your role models for masculinity and how to be a good man. And if you're in the process of updating any of those, the phone number to call is 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. I want to bring Flynn into the conversation now. Flynn, we first heard from you at Death, Sex, and Money right after our episode Manhood Now came out. You sent us an email, and you wrote us yeah. about uh, going through the process. You are trans, and you mm-hmm. uh, have been going through the process of taking testosterone and, and presenting as more masculine. It seems like the timeline is it overlaps quite closely with when we've been in this larger cultural conversation about how men are viewed. And, and I wonder yeah. for you, as you were going through that transition and thinking about how you wanted to present. Um, did you feel like you had any role models? Uh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the timing. I actually started, uh, my first testosterone shot was right after uh, Trump was elected, so it did feel <laughs> a little strange timing-wise huh. um, and, and definitely had some, some minor hesitations as a result of that. Um, and I think for me, something that I've uh, been hearing from a lot of the men that have already called in um, is something that resonates with me a lot, and it's mostly from the men who whose parents had sort of less traditional um, roles, and they've talked about being good humans as opposed to just being good men. Um, and I feel that way very much about both of my parents, about um, members of the queer and trans community, um, and it's when I look at my life moving forward for my nephews, let's say I have two nephews, um, mm. I I very much want to encourage them to be good humans as opposed to just, you know, good men. And how do you talk to them about that? Like, what do you, what do you say about how to be a good human and, 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 like, different kinds of masculinity? How do you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think kids notice a lot, so... Uh, they will ask questions, uh, oftentimes questions that adults won't even want to ask. So they'll ask about, you know, I, my nephew asked me why I wore an earring in one of my ears and asked if it was because I used to be a girl. And I said, I, I was like, I laughed and said, no, you know, I just, I like it. And, you know, boys can wear earrings too if they want. And I think those sort of small interactions, even though it seems sort of insignificant, are really important because it early on um, makes kids feel okay expressing themselves 
whether that be in a more masculine or a more feminine way or anywhere to one side of the nut or the other or in between, um, it makes them feel okay about that and okay about themselves. And have you noticed at all your family, the adult members of your family? Do you think um, watching you go through this process and how you've thought about how you want to be viewed and how you want to present and how you how you define yourself, has it changed how the, the men in your life, in your family, kind of think about the different ways they can express themselves as men? Yeah, I, it definitely. I think that I've noticed that shift with um, my older brother, uh, who I actually didn't grow up with, and um, my dad as well. And at this point in time, I, I mean, a lot of our conversations have mostly been them asking questions and um, asking for advice sometimes, which is interesting to me because I am younger than both of them. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to have those conversations, and I'm excited. I think there are... Uh, to cis men's credit, I think there are absolutely um, cis men out there that want to be having those conversations and are worried about saying the wrong things um, and, you know, want a safe space to say that. And uh, I would encourage, you know, men to talk to other men, trans or otherwise, um, but also listen to women simultaneously. Yeah, you can do both. Uh, uh, and exactly. and Flynn, is there is there a small example that you can think of of, of something your a family members asked for advice from you about an older family member coming to you? Yeah, I think um, in terms of my brother and I have mostly talked about he's in the military, and so we've talked about uh, me describing myself as as soft and like softly masculine. Um, and for him, that is something he thought about is very, very negative, um, particularly within the military. And so um, he has asked me more about, you know, why I I don't think of that in a negative way and how that term might have changed over the last 10 years or so in, in the same way many terms have changed. Hmm. Flynn, thanks so much for reaching out to us on the show. It's nice to talk with you. Of course. Thank you, Anna. Kamau, I've got a question for you. When you think about what you've learned from the women in your life and, and how talking with them about their experiences with men, how has that changed the way you try to be as a man? Sort of a big question. You know, one of the, I think one of the great things that has happened to me is I found myself in situations where I was the only man <laughs> multiple <laughs> times in my life, in my adult life. And one of the things I've learned is like, you don't always have to have a vocal opinion about anything. <laughs> about everything. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, a really good like, lesson to learn. It's, it's, <laughs> I think there's something as a man that you're sort of invited to go, you're sort of invited, you know, mansplaining was invented for that reason, the term of mansplaining, but you don't always have to say your opinion out loud. And sometimes if you keep your mouth shut, it's not that you necessarily even agree with everything that's being said, but your perspective will be opened up wider. And I think that being aware of, as a man, if you start talking, there's just a sense of like, you can you you can use your male privilege for evil and not even be trying to do it just by well I don't know <laughs> so so for me it's like hey man just shut up that's the that's the ba- the best thing I've learned about being surrounded by women. I want to bring the first woman into our conversation this hour, Caitlin in Chicago. Hi, thanks for calling in. Hi, hi. When you think about your role models for what is a good man, who do you think of, and and have you been rethinking and updating that recently? Yeah, so mine, um, I was raised in a pretty idyllic family. Um, I was raised pretty for Catholic, but um, there was no doubt about women and men being equal. My father retired early so that my mom could take on her dream job, and that was when I was in second grade. So my dad, you know, was the stay-at-home dad for most of my childhood, or for all of my childhood. And, you know, it just was never a question about women equal. And then when I was in my later teens, after my father had passed away, he died when I was 16. Um, I quote unquote turned punk. <laughs> so uh-huh. my idea of manhood changed a little bit. Um, you know, I thought of men as like these grungy, strong men characters. And, and I guess my idea of uh, success changed too, where I thought that, the, you know, I wanted to be with a successful man. Huh. Um, then, you know, you live life and you meet all different kinds of men. And uh, I ended up marrying a man very similar to my father, who is a completely 
kind, unquestionably, like we're equals. Like to him, it's completely duh situation. There's no, there, of course, we're equals. <laughs> so after and going through that process, I'm, you you married a man quite like your father after your your punk phase. <laughs> Thank you, Caitlin, for your call. We will take more of your calls after the break, including I want to hear how you are talking to the men in your lives about this. 844-745-TALK. I'm Anna Sale from Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale, host of Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. And tonight we are talking together about manhood now. And I want to end this hour with a focus on how you are talking about this with the men in your life and how you aren't. What are you finding is still too tough to talk about? In our national survey of men with 538, nearly half of men say they frequently or sometimes feel alone. More than 40% said they've never or have rarely asked a friend for personal advice. More than two-thirds of men say they've never been to see a therapist. So that made me wonder, as a woman, what do you need, men, to help you talk about this more? What would help you? So we're taking your calls now. If Tell us if you've had a conversation about manhood in the last year that you feel like changed things for you. Was it with your father, your brother, another man in your life, with a woman? Are there conversations you want to have that still feel too difficult? 844-745-TALK is the phone number, 844-745-8255. And I want to bring two people into the conversation now, Alex and Ryan, a couple who have really inspired me. Yesterday, they sent in a voice memo to the Death, Sex, and Money email inbox with a recording of a conversation they had together about masculinity. They are a married couple, and as they were getting dressed yesterday morning with their five-month-old baby in the room, they started talking about masculinity. Alex explained to her husband that she had some questions for him about how he thought of himself as a man, how that affected how he thought of women when he was younger. And then she got out her phone and started recording an interview with him. Here's a little bit of that. Like, it was cool to have women. Right. You know? But, like, it wasn't cool to, like, be in love and stuff like you know like that's like oh you in love like that was like you know like okay so ridiculed and and considered what soft yeah which in turn is a sign of weakness weakness yeah and that's not what you want alex are you there yeah hi alex you are my hero i'm gonna start interviewing my husband I'm going to get out my phone. You're on the record. And Ryan, are you there? I'm here. So, Ryan, I want to hear from you. Um, is that kind of conversation that we just heard a little bit of that you had with your wife about masculinity, about manhood, is that sort of conversation one that you've always been comfortable having? No. Um, this is um, it's probably new over the last couple of years since we've been married. And a little bit before then, but I really didn't do many, many um, looks into myself to see how I really felt about manhood and masculinity and how I was really feeling about things and opening up about them. This this is a new experience. And what's that changed for you? Um, I, I just feel more comfortable now and more, um, more free to not have to live up to an expectation that maybe somebody else had set and I can really be a man on my own terms. Hmm. And I understand you work primarily with men. Has this led to you right. talking with coworkers about being a man? Do you bring up things that you wouldn't before? I I bring them up. They're not always um, received <laughs> as well as they are when I'm at home. But we have a conversation because there's a lot of different men at my job from 60-year-olds to 20-year-olds and married and single and divorced. And so we have every man on the spectrum, basically, so we can have a lot of good conversations. And it's just good to hear what others think as opposed to or in agreement to what I what I feel about manhood. Huh. And Alex, as as you've tried to talk to Ryan about being a man, have you ever said the wrong thing? when you were trying to have a conversation that, that made it not feel productive or safe? 
Yeah, I think I, I think I've done that a couple of times, and that I think that kind of comes with the territory of of, of being married and learning the language uh, to use with your partner. And what's a, what's an example of when maybe you said the wrong thing? So I, was, I think it was last year when I was pregnant and hormonal and just kind of raging and hot, and I might have said something like, "Babe." Uh, I want you to do something. He may not have done it right away. Um, and I think I might have called him lazy. And I know that that pissed him off and hurt his feelings. So we had a whole dialogue surrounding, like, me using my words in a way that made him feel, you know, like I was putting him down. And that's the last thing I ever want to do. Um but that word lazy was definitely a trigger, and it opened up a whole can of worms for us. Um, and we were able to dive into that talk about masculinity and what that meant when using certain words. Hmm. So, Ryan, to, to be called lazy by your wife, that cut at something deep about how you think about yourself as a man. Right, absolutely, because that's the the last thing that I want to be because a lazy man is not, it's not something that is valued. Um, or as far as when I was growing up, that's not something that you were supposed to be. Like, that's not a good thing. If your wife is calling you lazy, that's a bad sign. So I didn't, I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. He's probably not lazy. Let me just put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> you hedged. I could, when you said you might have called him lazy, I could tell you had some regrets about that. Um, did you eventually do the thing, Ryan, that Alex was asking you to do? I'm, I'm sure I did that and every other thing that needed to be done. Well, Alex and Ryan, thank you for joining us. And thank you, Alex, for sending in that audio of your private conversation that you were having about masculinity. And if you listeners want to hear audio of that conversation, Alex and Ryan sent us, we're actually releasing that as a special bonus episode right now. You can find it in the Death, Sex, and Money podcast feed or on our website at deathsexmoney.org. While you're there on the website, there's a big yellow button that says, subscribe. You can click on it for more conversations like this, all about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. Uh, w. Kamau Bell is here with me. And uh, has that ever been happened to your marriage, Kamau? Have you ever, have you ever <laughs> had your I had wife? a hard time not like, why would you call him lazy? You know, he's working hard. <laughs> My blood pressure went up when she called him, when she told the story about being called of uh, being called lazy. And I think it's a lot about, you know, there's this whole thing where gender roles are changing, but also gender roles are in many ways locked into place in some ways. Like this is just the nature of the game. And so, you know, I hear in Ryan's voice the struggle to like, I want to evolve, but I also, you know, it turns out it's my job to take out the garbage. You know, like so it's just like how do you how do you negotiate those two paths? Allie in Jamesburg, New Jersey, what is a conversation about manhood that you would like to have or have had that shifted some things? Hi, how are you? Hi, thanks for calling. Thanks. I'm actually, like, incredibly nervous right now. <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. Um, tell me about Tell me about I've a conversation. Had a lot of, I've had a lot of very interesting conversations about masculinity with my father. Hmm. Um he's been a huge role model for me as to what a good man is and what a good man should be. And since the Me Too movement has come out, a lot of his favorite like actors and comedians have been involved and outed with the things they've done. Uh, like Louis C.K. was one of his favorite comedians. And uh-huh. After that whole thing came to light, my dad and I sat down and we just talked about it for a really long time and he asked me what a person can do to be redeemed after uh, making a woman a victim or harassing a woman and if a man can be redeemed after doing something like that and if like what's the you know statute of limitations on the time a man needs to repent for his actions or what they need to do and it made me really sit back and look at the people that I've involved in my life and the people who I've tried to have conversations like that with Um, and it was really eye-opening to me to see the way it affects what I believe to be good men when people they 
enjoy or people they look up to in some sort of way do horrible things. And it was really kind of interesting to see it affect my dad in that way. And Allie, as a woman, knowing that in Louis C.K.'s case, the the people that that he victimized were women, um, that he, he abused his power, he did something wildly inappropriate with women, to hear your dad talk about how can he be redeemed rather than how how would that feel for you as a woman um did it feel like he was missing something not at all because that really came up at the end of our conversation my dad said like i can't i can't believe that this this would happen to women these days i think we've made so many advancements in the furthering of women in every aspect and he was very supportive in the whole feminism and supportive aspect of everything and then he wanted to know like if anybody did anything horrible what can they if if there is anything what can they do to redeem themselves or what horrible things can or can't be excused can a person just you know do nothing and stay hidden for the rest of their life or at some point can say a boss of a retail job that did something not so great and got caught and fired for it can they live their life a productive way again Hmm. Allie, thanks for for your call about your conversation with your father. Kamal, since since comedy came up and, and the wrongs in, in comedy, have you found in the last year and a half, say, that people who have been in your professional orbit, um, are you behaving differently? Are there are there sort of conversations where you would hear things kind of joked about that uh, you would have let slide before and now you're not letting slide? Are you um, reevaluating who are people you want to work with? Uh, how, how has that affected the way you think about who you want to associate with? I mean, I think what it does is it just, for me, it's just like... M- pay attention more you know I, I uh, I'm not spending as much time in the comedy clubs as I used to so I really don't want to comment on what what I, what's happening in inside of comedy clubs because but uh, and I don't want comedians to think that I'm doing that because they would be like we haven't seen you in quite a while come out <laughs> you have a new baby yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so I just want to be uh, but what it does is that these stories like the story that was referenced with Louis CK was a commonly known story I knew about it and I wasn't even there but the way it was the way it was sort of passed through people who weren't there is like this crazy funny thing that happened not like oh my god this man harassed these women so I think for me what it is now is that if you hear things like this make sure that you like to sort of like keep your ears open and don't take them don't take them on their face for how they're being sold to you you know I think it does put everybody on notice and I think some comedians are annoyed that they have to be on notice because there's a thing about comedy where we're sort of supposed to be outside of regular society and we drink and we stay up late and get into all sorts of adventures but you know, we're also a part of society, and I think all the streams are being crossed now, so we can't expect that the things that happen in those clubs or in those places are just happening in those places. Bobby in Braintree, Massachusetts, I want to bring you in to hear about what, what kind of con- conversations are you having about manhood, conversations that you wouldn't have had before? Uh, well, I've had conversations with, with my wife, with female friends, uh, a number of conversations um, that uh, about you know toxic masculinity, especially you know uh, after the uh, the number of stories, especially Aziz Ansari, you know uh, po- the post about about his encounter with with a woman uh, really touched a nerve um, and sparked a lot of conversation. And uh, you know I just dived right in, and, and for a while I was um, you know feeling like wondering if if there even was a way to be a good man in, you know, in today's, you know, uh, moment and through, you know, conversations, um, a bunch of hard conversations, uh, I've kind of like turned, turned a corner on that, but, um, you know, and still a little bit concerned that, that some of the, the anger, which is totally justifiable, you know, from women from having to put up with with misogyny and, and suffering and, and oppression um, uh, lends itself towards being co-opted by those who want to frame it as as women versus men instead of all of us versus you know uh, a system 
that contributes to violence and suffering and oppression and just nonsense that, that females shouldn't have to put up with. And when you were having those conversations with your wife or with female friends, did you find, were you asking more questions? Or what, what was the position that you were in in those conversations? Were you saying, this is a moment I look back on and not sure I did the right thing in retrospect? Or, or were you saying, how does this make you feel? Um, I, I was doing a lot of a lot of listening and kind of like waiting, waiting for my turn. And, uh, and you know, in some cases being really hesitant to say anything, um, you know, especially where I might have have an instinct to, to say, oh, wait, I'm not sure that reflects my experience. And that was, that was some, a realization that, that came to me that so, something that gets said commonly is, is that we're, uh, you know, like we live in our, our own bubbles you know, especially with with the internet reinforcing them, uh, political bubbles. But but I think bigger than that um, is that we each live in our own universe of one, right? Where we are carrying around our our experience uh, and and all of the the perspectives that, that that builds up over our life. So when something you know conflicts with that, our brains tend to go, wait, that that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and and you know we might struggle to to assimilate that into our our perspective. Bobby, thanks so much for your call. It's nice to talk with you. I'm going to let Tony from Facebook have the last word. He says it feels new to have relationships of trust. So much of society doesn't allow you to present as imperfect. Acknowledging imperfection is the only way to grow. And no man is born a perfect man. We are all growing into manhood. I want to thank W. Kamau Bell for being with me all hour long. He is a comedian, host of United Shades of America on CNN, and definitely check out his new stand-up special on Netflix called Private School Negro. Thank you so much for joining us, Kamau. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to a live call-in special from Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. We have these kinds of conversations all the time on our show. You can go to deathsexmoney.org or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. It's totally free, and we want more of you in on our conversations. To find our recent coverage exploring manhood right now, including our national survey results with the data news site 538 and a reading list about masculinity that our listeners helped us build, go to deathsexmoney.org slash men. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. With help tonight from Jessica Miller, Megan Cunane, Adam Shapiro, Simon Close, Jacqueline Sincata, Megan Ryan, Bill O'Neill, Jason Isaac, Matt Mirando, and at KALW in San Francisco, Matt Martin and Joanne Marr. Thank you to all of you for sharing your stories and for calling in. You can email us anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org with more of your stories or episode ideas. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.